Good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ City Church. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Andrea. I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Christ City. It's a privilege. It is a privilege to be worshiping with you, uh, to be able to bring the word today. I'm just grateful for this community, and um, don't take that lightly. So I realized when I was preparing uh, this week that I've been doing a lot of, like, sermon polls, like polls from the front, um, and I'm going to keep doing that. I'm just letting you know that now. It's really fun. It's an opportunity that you just don't get to poll people of sort of, I don't know, anything you want. Okay, so today's poll. Uh, how many of you had a special stuffed animal as a child? A lot. Okay. Um, are you brave enough to shout out what your... Oh, okay, and it doesn't have to be a stuffed animal. I should clarify that. Um, we call them loveys at our house. Loveys, stuffies. It could be a blanket. It could be a, like a doll, a stuffed animal. It could be a train. It could be anything. Um, okay, so is anybody brave enough to shout out what your, what your lovey was? Furby. A Furby? <laughs> Furby, mm -hmm. really specific moment in time. <laughs> Somebody else join Jocelyn. What else are your, come on, loveys? Loveys, this side? Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. Like a stuffed, a piglet? Okay. Okay. A baseball mitt? That one's fantastic. Did you, like, sleep with it? Oh. I love that. A baseball mitt. Anyway, this section? Sealy. Oh, was named Sealy? I love that. Sealy. Oh, thanks for sharing those. So are any of you brave enough to admit that you might still sleep with your lovey? Oh, some people, yeah. I'm impressed. That's, that's courage. Uh, I had a special lovey as a kid as well, um, and I brought it for you. Nick, hit me. This is my favorite stuffy friend. As you can see, this is a brown bear. I got really creative with his name. This is Bear Bear. <laughs> now, Bear Bear was my friend from the start. He was always with me, came with me everywhere. I loved him so much that you can tell that um, his nose used to have cloth and then like pleather on it. And his feet also used to have cloth and pleather on it. And um, these are like resold feet because they just rubbed off because I just loved him so much. Uh, I was the kid who could not spontaneously spend the night at somebody's house because I didn't have Bear Bear. Like, I was that kid. Sorry, Mom. Um, Bear Bear came with me to college <clears throat> and into my first growing-up apartment. Uh, Bear Bear still resides near to where I sleep, not in the bed anymore, um, in the closet um, facing, like, me. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Watching over me, if you will. And I had, now listen, I had many, many bears growing up. Like, um, teddy bears were sort of like a thing for me. But Bear Bear is the one that has stayed with me through every season, through every move. 
I've thrown away so much stuff. When you live in D.C., I feel like your space is just really rare, right? It's hard, and so you just throw away stuff. I've thrown away dolls and games and trophies and, like, memorabilia, all that stuff. But Bear Bear has been too special for me uh, to throw away or even, like, put in a box. He's got to be in the closet facing me, clearly. I think it's funny. I'm going to sit Bear Bear here. He's going to sit and watch. <laughs> I think it's funny the stuff that, like, sticks around when you clean out and move, right? Like, it's funny when you think about it, what holds significance and meaning for us. Like, if you ask me what Bear Bear means to me now, like, why he's still in my closet and not in a box or, like, in a landfill somewhere, I'm not sure I could fully articulate it, but I think just to simply say he means something to me. Somewhere along the way, I attached meaning to him. And this is a thing that we do as humans, don't we? We attach significance. We attach meaning, like as nebulous as it is sometimes. We attach it to tangible things. I was reading a little bit this week on like the human tendency to do this. Why do we do this? One article said it like this. Perhaps we're not surrounding ourselves with meaningful objects as much as we're attempting to surround ourselves with meaning. We're using like these objects that we've projected meaning on to help remind us that meaning exists. Because I think we question that fact all the time, right? When somebody, when someone loses someone that they love, one of our first instincts, for better or for worse, is to find and give a reason. That feels like the instinct, the first thing that we want to do. When like a relationship ends, when we have to walk through difficult circumstances, when there's just something that we don't understand, we use our energy to try to ascribe meaning, meaning to something. And life can feel so random. It feels so random. It's that age-old question, what is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Today, uh, I'm excited to tell you that we're starting a new sermon series. Um, it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And I'm thrilled to tell you um, that we have named this series The Meaning of Life. Because <laughs> we're going to tell you what it is. I'm just kidding. That is not exactly what we're doing here. If you've attended long enough, you know that's, that's not how this works. Now, this book didn't get picked because... It just gives like an easy answer to the question of life's meaning. I am sorry to disappoint you there. Ecclesiastes is like not at the top of the list, I feel like, for, for Bible books that most people have read um, or even heard of in some cases. Its claim to fame is maybe a handful of verses, so maybe you might recognize a few. So chapter 3, for everything there is a season a time for every matter under heaven. It's followed by a list of things. There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to plant, a time to reap. Chapter 3, sometimes those verses, you might hear those at a funeral. You might recognize a part of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one because they will have a good reward for their toil. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So sometimes those words... Are read, those verses are read at a wedding, at weddings. Maybe you might recognize this phrase uh, from the first few verses of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. 
There's nothing new under the sun. Or even what we heard already read this morning, vanity of vanities or, or meaningless, meaningless. All is vanity. All is meaningless. So Ecclesiastes, I mean, it has some top hits, okay, for good reason. But it isn't necessarily a comforting book, honestly. I think sometimes it might feel a little bit too real, maybe even feel a little discouraging. It just doesn't spoon-feed us any answers. But what it does do is give this very human question, this what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of this? What does life mean? It gives this very human question a biblical voice. Together, we can ask with the author of Ecclesiastes, what is the meaning of life? What are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to live? What matters? How can we look to God as our creator and as our sustainer while also not being dismissive about how hard and random life can feel? These are the questions that Ecclesiastes invites us to ask. And we're going to walk through the book, the whole thing, together over the next couple of months. I'm excited about that. So Ecclesiastes is probably one of the latest books that was written in the Old Testament. There's some debate among scholars on the actual date. Um, they, it's estimated to be somewhere between the 4th and 2nd century B.C., kind of a, a window there. Its inclusion in the, biblical, in the biblical canon was also debated amongst first century rabbis. It's a bit of a controver controversial book. Ecclesiastes is not afraid to just name things like they are. It avoids platitudes. It doesn't even include a nod to Israel's history, which so many Old Testament books do. So it's controversial. There's, there are things about it that make it Mm, controversial, but I think that that's also part of its punch. So Ecclesiastes is part of a group of books in the Old Testament referred to as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. So there are five books in the Old Testament that can be categorized this way. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and sometimes Psalms. Sort of like why is like a vowel sometimes. Sometimes Psalms. So wisdom literature was a common genre of written works in the ancient Near East known for directly dealing with the way that the world works, like the big philosophical things and then the small ordinary things. And wisdom literature often did that in the form of storytelling and poetry. Wisdom literature offers us teaching um, about wisdom, about virtue, how to live. Now, it's a bigger category than just in the Bible, okay? So it was, a, it was like a, a, a common genre. But some wisdom literature did make it into the biblical canon, including Ecclesiastes. Now, the tone of each biblical like wisdom book is pretty different. Um, but what they do hold together is that they hold together in exploring what it means to go through the full range of human emotion, and the full range of human experience, and to live wisely before God. The wisdom books. As one commentary put it, the wisdom books explore the art of navigating the complexities of life and discerning God's ways in the immediacy of life. They're books that have been hard won because they've had to be lived, and then they're books for us to 
consider and glean and learn from as we too live. Now, reading wisdom literature can be a bit of a different experience from the way that we read other books of the Bible, and especially the Gospels and the New Testament letters, which we do tend to spend a good amount of time in. So for starters, the majority of wisdom literature is written as poetry. Poetry is not like a straightforward, like reading for information experience. So even as truth is revealed in poetry, we're meant to go on a journey with the poem. Like we're meant to experience something. A poem is not just like a bullet pointed list to give us information. We're supposed to go on a journey together. Now I think a lot of the time we expect the Bible to read like a bullet pointed manual. Do any of you guys remember the song, um, it was like Bible, B-I-B-L-E with like a period in between, um, which stood for basic instructions before leaving earth? <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a throwback. 90s, early 2000s, 90s I think. I mean, no hate to that song, okay. I'm not going to play it. You're welcome. Um, and no hate to that song, but the Bible isn't an instruction manual. And even though the wisdom books can include direct instruction, they're also not meant to be read as a manual or like a textbook. So the wisdom discovered and shared in these books isn't meant to just like spark our rational thinking. That's part of it, sure. But it's also meant to spark our curiosity, it's meant to trigger patience in us, patience and growth. Now, our culture that we live in doesn't value patience in the same kind of way. I think we value um, things that are new, things that are fast, innovative, right? Like, we manufacture textbooks and we invent the internet to expedite the dissemination of information. And honestly, I do think that we would prefer a bullet-pointed PowerPoint over a book of stories and poetry a lot of the time. And honestly, a lot of people, I think, do still treat the Bible that way. But wisdom literature invites us back into the human experience. Some things are meant to be chewed, and they're meant to be digested, and they're not just meant to be scarfed down real quick. And wisdom literature is one of those things and there's something about wisdom literature, too, that's written by ancient people that reminds us of this very circular nature of being human. That's thousands of years later, we are still asking the same kinds of questions. We're still longing for guidance and making the right choices in the midst of our sometimes mundane, sometimes chaotic, immediate life experience, right? There is nothing new under the sun. And the ultimate goal of wisdom literature isn't necessarily to just like dole out answers to all of life's problems, but maybe instead wisdom literature is helping us to remember that we are being beckoned to keep seeking and pursuing wisdom and that we won't always feel like satisfied and at ease when we read wisdom literature. Spoiler alert, that definitely will not be the case for Ecclesiastes. But our hope is that we won't feel complacent either, that we will feel compelled and not complacent. So in Ecclesiastes, we're invited into this journey. We're, it's so interesting. We're invited in the very beginning of Ecclesiastes into this like experiment. There's an experiment that's happening. 
So in verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, we are told that the words of the book belong to a teacher, a teacher. Now, the Hebrew word translated in our Bibles as teacher is kohelet, kohelet. Now, sometimes this is translated as teacher. Sometimes it's translated as preacher, teacher, preacher. The name of the book, Ecclesiastes, is actually a Latin transliteration of the Greek translation of kohelet, the Latin, the Greek, and of the Hebrew. So you might recognize the word, the root word ecclesia in there, the Greek root word ecclesia, which is gathering, church. It's like when we talk about the church. So Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, one who convenes an assembly, a teacher, a preacher, um, a speaker of the house, if you will. Now the legendary attribution of Ecclesiastes, who Kohelet is, is to Solomon. David's son, king of Israel, known as the wisest man in the world. Now, it's unlikely that Solomon was the actual author of Ecclesiastes. It was probably written long after his reign, but it's not like weird or atypical that the book is attributed to him. We can read it as attributed to the tradition of Solomon. And for our study purposes, we're going to refer to the speaker as Kohelet. Okay? So Kohelet, the teacher starts out this book pretty bleak, pretty bleak. Verse, chapter one, verse two, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, says Kohelet. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? They say a few more choice things uh, in the first 11 verses. I'll let you read those on your own. Um, bum yourself out. Um, everything is wearisome. Nothing is new. And it wouldn't matter even if it was because nothing and no one are remembered anyway. All is vanity. That's my quick summary of the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, and I think I'm right about that. All is vanity. The Hebrew word, we're doing a little bit of Hebrew today. We're in the Old Testament. You with me? You with me? All right. So the Hebrew word that's translated in this version of the Bible as vanity is Hevel, Hevel. It's actually pronounced more with like a V, but it's Hevel. It's translated as vanity here. This word shows up 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Hevel. So here it's translated as vanity, but its meaning is actually a bit more complex than that, okay? So Hevel can mean vapor. It can mean smoke. So in some translations, verse 2 is written as vapor of vapors. All is vapor. It can mean ephemeral. Life is short. You know? It's here, then it's gone. Hevel can also be translated as nonsense, deceit. It can be translated as senseless. In some versions, it's translated as meaningless. Everything is meaningless, nothing matters. Humans are here and then they're gone and then they're not even in control of what happens in the middle of that. Bleak. I think though, if we're honest, this might be the thing that resonates for us the most. It has been for me, okay? If we don't have control over anything, what is the point? 
If all of our pursuits of doing the right thing are just a drop in the bucket or not even that, if it doesn't really matter, why should we bother? Why do we bother? Our life is short. One of the, um, one of the sort of catchphrases that I read, <laughs> I read that somebody had coined um, about Ecclesiastes and sort of the summary of it was, um, have a blast while you last. <laughs> why shouldn't we? I feel like that's what the question we're at, that we are asking is, why shouldn't we just have a blast while we last? Why does, if nothing matters, that's what we should do. We end up in the same place as Kohelet. And I feel like reading through this book, I was surprised, I don't know why I was surprised, for it to resonate so deeply with me. And I thought, huh, vanity of vanities. Everything is vapor. Everything is vapor. So this is how the book starts. <laughs> Kohelet makes this bleak observation of the human condition right from the start, right? But then in chapter 1, verse 12, we see the beginning of Kohelet's journey or like this experiment to test it. He's like, here's what it is. Let's test it. Why don't I try to seek out something that is not Hevel, if it can be found? So this is, verse, this is chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given humans to be busy with. So Kohalath here in chapter 1 is trying, starts this sort of experiment search to see if he can find meaning in wisdom and knowledge. He says that, verse 16 says that he surpassed all who were over Jerusalem before him, and that he had experienced wisdom and knowledge by applying his mind. So he had done the thing. He'd sought it out. He had all the resources available to him at his fingertips to be able to seek out knowledge, to be able to seek out wisdom. He comes to a conclusion, experiment number one. Let's try wisdom and knowledge. Conclusion, verse 17. I perceived that this is also but a chasing after the wind. Vapor. Vapor. So then Kohelet tries something else next in chapter 2. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, okay, come now. Kohelet didn't say, okay, I put that in there. I don't know what happened. <laughs> come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Kohelet's like, okay, if wisdom and knowledge are hebel, let's see what comes of self-indulgence. Why not? Verse 9. I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure from all my toil, and this was my reward from all my toil. Now he goes on to list more of what he indulges in in this chapter. He's like, I drank the good wine, and I built a bunch of houses, and I just gathered a bunch of treasures, and I bought silver and gold, and I surrounded myself with them, and then I um, enjoyed entertainment. I had singers and dancers and just had fun. This is what I did. 
Whatever I desired, I indulged in. So this is experiment two. Right? We tried wisdom and knowledge. Mm, vapor. Let's try fun, self-indulgence. Have a blast while you last. Let's try that. Conclusion, verse 11. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All is vanity. So what are we supposed to learn here? This is the first two chapters of this book. What are we supposed to learn here? What wisdom is being offered to us? I feel like at this point we've gone on a journey with Kohelet and we've already come full circle. All is hevel. It's all vanity. So what even is the point then of asking if life has meaning? I feel like that's the general conclusion that feels right. Shouldn't we just stop that search now? It doesn't matter. All is vanity. I think it might be helpful to return to the definition of hevel. All is vain, all is vapor, all is senseless. That is what Kohelet is saying. Yes. But I'll offer one more definition here, I think, for us as we consider what it means to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, what wisdom it has to offer here. Uh, Michael Fox uh, is a rabbi. He's a professor. Um, he is gar- regarded as an expert scholar, particularly on Biblical wisdom literature, this very um, niche kind of, kind of um, spot. I was reading some things that uh, some of his studies on Ecclesiastes this week, and he offers that in considering what hevel means, I mean, all, it encompasses all these things, right? Vanity, vapor, meaning, senseless, all those things. He said, perhaps, though, we should add to it that we should consider hevel to be translated as absurd. Absurd. Absurdity of absurdities. All is absurd. Now, for Kohelet to say that everything is absurd, it could mean like everything is ridiculous or like everything is impossible. Sure, absurd. But Professor Rabbi Fox pushes to us that maybe calling life absurd isn't just saying it's impossible and throwing our hands up. Maybe what hevel means, everything is hevel, everything is absurd, maybe that is less about throwing our hands up in impossibility and more about recognizing that there is a contradiction that we live in between two undeniable realities. There is a contradiction. And that the frustration that we resonate with so deeply in Kohelet's writing is a longing for coherence between the two. Everything is, this is absurd. These realities both exist and they seem to contradict one another. I want coherence between the two and I'm frustrated. Everything is meaningless. Now I think with this kind of perspective, as we go into the book of Ecclesiastes in this series, Kohelet's exclamation that everything is hevel doesn't squash the human desire for meaning then. It just fuels it, right? Friends, we are holding two undeniable realities. 
I don't have to convince you of that. Holding two undeniable realities is holding that life is vapor, but also that it is significant. It's holding that our ephemeral life, the quickness of it with all its like chaos and randomness and hardship and lack of control is also held with God's life. And God's life is the one that doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end because it always has been and it always will be. Absurdities. Holding two undeniable realities is, is holding Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, all is Hebel with our series anchor verse that comes from chapter 3, which says, I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. And God has done this so that all should stand, so that all should stand in awe before him. It's holding those together. The search for meaning doesn't end, but that doesn't mean we never find any. In this series, this is what we want to do. We want to together step into this conundrum with Kohelet. Everything is Hebel. Everything is absurd. We have to hold two things at once. It's what our hope and our meaning hang on, that what God does is forever, even if everything we have and do is like vapor. It's living in the now and not yet. We use that language a lot where we recognize that the kingdom of God is around us and we recognize it sometimes, but we also continue to long for the day when we see the kingdom in its fullness and we know that that's not what we're experiencing now. We're holding both. It means all of our pursuits for justice, sometimes you see, you get a glimpse of justice, of God's justice, and sometimes you just get crushed. Holding those two things, those two undeniable realities that God is just and injustice still exists, two undeniable realities. Absurd. Absurd. But it's still pursuing it. It's absurd that life is both laughing and lamenting. Pretty equally, sometimes at the same time. Whoever coined the phrase, live, laugh, love, I feel like got it wrong. I feel like it should be, Ecclesiastes says it should be live, laugh, lament. I feel like that's not as marketable um, for people. Let's put that in our living rooms. Live, laugh, lament. But that feels more like the life that Kohelet knows. Searching for the meaning of life is recognizing both the limitations and the freedom of being human. Absurd. It's knowing that life under the sun can be interpreted through the hope of life above the sun. It's feeling like death is omnipresent, like it's all around us all the time, but it's also holding and knowing that God actually is omnipresent, that God actually is with us all the time. It's holding those two things together. This is the wisdom that's offered to us in Ecclesiastes. 
And again, this doesn't tie up in a neat bow. I feel like even me saying that, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We are going to walk together through this book and we are going to hold these two absurd things together. Cool. I feel like actually that's going to create frustration in us. Our hope for this series is that as we walk through Ecclesiastes together, that we hold both of these realities up as a community, as we live, laugh, and lament. This series, I think, beckons us into Kohelet's experimental observations. What matters? Why does it matter? Listen, this series is going to challenge how we read the Bible, okay? It's going to challenge how we read the Bible. It's going to challenge how we define faith. We're going to have to encounter our frustrations. We're going to have to encounter our, our wonderings, our questions, and be challenged to recognize all of those as a part of our faith life. Not separate from it, but a part of it. Frustrations, wonderings, questions, they're, what part, they're part of what makes meaning in life. <laughs> That's what we're going to do together. Our prayer is that we would confront the tendencies that we all have towards like trying to ascribe those quick fix, you know, trite meanings to our lives just because we're frustrated that we have to hold two things. I would pray that during these next eight weeks, we would put away our platitudes and be honest with ourselves, be honest with each other about the realities of being human, that we would be able to express and listen and hold really well the realities of what it's like being ourselves and the realities of what it's like for somebody else. I'm really praying that what this series stirs up in us is what St. Augustine would call holy restlessness. Restlessness. So this is what we're going to be doing together over the next few weeks. Um, I do want to encourage you to check out a small group if you haven't already. Um, most of our groups are going to be walking through the sermon series in their weekly discussions. Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. My prayer for us uh, is that God would meet us in our absurdities. That we would be transformed as we remember and we recognize the one who meets us there. Let me pray for us.